God exists. Does God speak? Does God speak? What, makes what makes Christianity, Christianity unique? unique? How do I know if I'm going to heaven? Why wouldn't God, Why wouldn't save, God everyone? save everyone? How can anyone believe the Bible? Isn't it full of contradictions? Full of contradictions? Full of contradictions? <laughs> Don't all religions lead to the same God? Why are there so, so many denominations? How can Christians claim Jesus is the only, the way? only way? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? How can you reconcile belief in God with science? How could a loving, loving God, God condemn people to hell? Do I need God to be more? What about all the hypocrites? How could there be a God with so much evil and suffering? What about people who've never heard of Jesus? Wasn't Jesus just a good teacher? Isn't it all relative? Isn't it all relative? Isn't it all relative? Isn't it all relative? everybody. Glad you guys are here. I want to start out this morning with a story I ran across uh, this week um, about an investigation that took place in the early 1900s in Chicago. It goes like this. It was an uneventful Saturday at the Hiller home in Chicago. Clarence Hiller spent his afternoon painting the trim on the outside of his two-story house on West 104th Street. By early evening, he and his family had turned in for the night. However, what happened next would change criminal law in America forever. The, Hiller woke, uh, the Hillers woke up in the early morning hours of September 19, 1910, and became suspicious that a gaslight near their daughter's bedroom had gone out. Clarence went in to investigate. His wife heard a quick sequence of sounds, a scuffle, two men tumbling down the stairs, two gunshots, and the slamming of the front door. She emerged to find her husband, Clarence, dead at the foot of the stairs. Police arrested Thomas Jennings, a convicted burglar less than a mile away. There was blood on his clothes, and his left arm had been injured, both, he said, from falling on a streetcar. In his pocket, they found uh, the same gun, kind of gun that had been used to shoot Clarence Hiller, but they couldn't determine in that, in that day if it was the murder weapon or not. Knowing they needed more evidence to convict Jennings, detectives scoured inside the Hiller's home, searching for additional clues. One fact soon became unbelievably obvious. The killer had entered through a rear kitchen window. Detectives went outside, and there next to that window, forever imprinted in the fresh white paint that the murder victim himself had so carefully applied to the railing just a few hours earlier, they found four clear fingerprints from someone's left hand. Fingerprint evidence at this time was a completely new concept, having been recently introduced at an international police exhibition in St. Louis. So far, fingerprints had never been used to convict anyone of murder in the U.S. Despite strong objections by the defense attorney that such evidence was unscientific and inadmissible, four officers testified that the fingerprints in the paint perfectly matched those of Jennings and him alone. This single piece of evidence was conclusive enough for the jury to find Jennings guilty. The fingerprint evidence was what enabled these men and women of the jury to decide whom Jennings really was beyond a reasonable doubt. That's what juries are often asked to do, right? To make a decision on someone or something based on the evidence and, and the prosecution's ability to prove it, quote, quote, beyond a reasonable doubt. Not beyond the shadow of a doubt, not, without, not with absolute certainty, but beyond a reasonable doubt. Sort of the prosecution is to present evidence that would be persuasive enough that a rational, thinking, open-minded person could make an accurate and confident decision based on the evidence, based on the facts. Well, today, as uh, Josh mentioned earlier, we're starting a new series here at Ignite called Skeptics Wanted. And over the next five weeks, uh, we're going to do our very best to try and address some of the most common questions, some of the most common stumbling blocks, and even some of the most common misconceptions about Christianity. We're going to dive into them. We're going to present you with some, some evidence and some of the reasons that back up the claims of Christ, that back up the claims of the Bible and Christianity. And then we're going to ask you to weigh the evidence for yourselves, to decide for yourself. And again, the expectation cannot be that, that, that we will present evidence beyond all doubt, right? Because all of us are doubters, right? We'll, we'll take a little moment and just say, how many of us have ever asked a question, have ever not fully understood or doubted something that we've read in the pages of God's book or something involving Christianity? Can we all kind of raise our hands and say, 
All of us are doubters at some point, right? That's something, that, that's something we have in common. So we're, uh, the expectation cannot be that we'll walk out of here with all of our questions answered. Not going to happen. But what we're going to do is, is we're going to present to you some evidence that I think oftentimes gets overlooked and sometimes is the opposite is even presented in our culture. The, it seems like our culture tends to, to go towards this side that says, you know what, if, you are a, if you're a Christ follower, then you must ha have no brain, right? You must check your brain at the door because kind of what our culture says is if you were an intelligent, rational person, then you would know that science and knowledge accounts for everything and God is just a crutch that was invented by weak people. That's sort of what our culture tends to, to promote about God. But I, I'll tell you what, I think they're dead wrong. And over the, over the next five weeks, we're going to present you with, with what I think is some compelling evidence. Uh, again, evidence that at least beyond a reasonable doubt, evidence enough that a rational, open, thinking person can look at it and say, you know what, I think there's something to this. I think, there's, I think there's something to this book. I think there's something to this Jesus guy that we're talking about. I think there's something uh, about God as the initiator, as the creator. I think, I think maybe, just maybe, this is for real, that we can have faith and confidence enough to put our faith and trust in Christ and follow him. So you with me? What I'm going to ask is, this is going to be very different than what we, what we usually do. I'm going to give you a lot of, lot of info. Uh, like Josh said, next week I'm going to have a good friend of mine who's got his PhD in biochemistry from the Mayo Clinic. Super sharp guy to come. And we're going to do Q&A stuff with him about science and Christianity. Again, oftentimes they're painted as being at odds. And so you're not going to want to miss that. Again, on the other side, don't show up here. Oh, on the other side of the Civic Center. Um, but we're going to do a whole host of things and present you with some evidence, and I think it'll be jaw-dropping. My hope and my desire is that it will build our faith and build our confidence in, in what God says is true. See you with me? Today we're taking the uh, first step. I, I want to talk about this foundational sort of idea um, uh, of the reliability and the trustworthiness of this book because this is going to be uh, important for us. It's foundational as we move ahead and we'll talk about it in, uh, and use it as a reference in weeks to come. So I want us to talk about the Bible a little bit. I want you to put on your thinking caps, kind of open up your hearts and minds, and I want you to weigh the evidence for yourself. But in particular today, I want us to look at the New Testament and the Gospels, the accounts of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because it is the basis for so much of the faith that we profess. It's the Bible that tells us about Jesus and his, his life and resurrection. It's the Bible that passes down to us the story of our origins and how they were made. It's the Bible that teaches us how we're to live, how marriages and relationships are supposed to, supposed to work best. It, it's the Bible that teaches us how to pray, how to connect with God, and on and on. And so setting the basis and the foundation for the reliability of this book is pretty significant. The Bible would even take it beyond uh, saying that it's a, it's a historically reliable work. And they would say, the Bible would actually say of itself that it's actually inspired by God, that it's God-breathed. Look at a couple of these verses. 2 Corinthians 3, or 2 Timothy, excuse me, 3, uh, 16 and 17 says this, says, all scripture is God-breathed. Like God breathed his words into it and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Peter, this is an interesting one to me, um, 15 and 16, it's... Uh, Peter is talking about Paul, who is the writer of about half of the New Testament. And he says this, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking of the, uh, to, in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand at times, which ignorant and unstable people distort, so they, as they do the other scriptures, but to their own destruction. I think that's interesting. He's, he's saying, you know what? Not only is, is scripture God breathed, but he's saying, you know what? These letters, these, these, these things that are in the New Testament, these writings of Paul, he's putting them into that category and saying, those things are scripture. They are God breathed. They're inspired by God. Peter is claiming that the writings of Paul are scripture. They're in inspired by God, not just fairy stories. And if that's true, friends, if it's true, then there ought to be some significant evidence to back that up, don't you think? If, if we're saying this is God's book and God's word, then it ought to be in a category all its own. There ought to be a clear chain of evidence that can lead us to that conclusion. Evidence enough 
that a reasonable person can, can look at it, can check it out, and can make a decision on their own. Well, the first kind of thing I want us to look at and think about, it has to do with the dating of the Gospels. I remember uh, within the last year to 18 months, something like that, I helped a relative of mine move and uh, went on one end and helped him load up and then drove with him to the other end where uh, there was some, some other relatives that I'd never met before that were there helping us unload. And so we're, we're carrying boxes and, oh my gosh, filing cabinets and all kinds of, all kinds of stuff, uh, moving it into their new home and, and all this kind of stuff. And we're, we're joking and laughing and having a great time, me and these, these other folks, and just enjoying serving and, and being together and that kind of stuff until this glorious moment when one of them asked uh, what I did for a living. And so I said, well, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm a church planner. I help start new churches uh, that, that are passionate about impacting people's lives and the, the cities that they're a part of and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and one of them sort of went just off the handle, flew off the handle right there, and sort of just went off on me and started saying how Christianity was just something, the Bible was just something that was written hundreds of years after the birth of Christ by people that were hungry for power and money. And they just kept kind of blasting me <laughs> like with this, with, with this kind of thing. And I was kind of rocked back a little bit on my heels. But that's actually a fairly common objection to Christianity. The, the, people would say the Gospels, the ones that are supposed to talk about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right, are the four that we're talking about here. People would say, no, those things were written, they were fabricated hundreds of years after Jesus supposedly lived on the earth. They were made up by people that, that needed it or wanted it in that kind of way. But I have to tell you what, I, I could not disagree more. I, I shared with them a little bit that I don't think a rational thinking person who has examined the evidence, who has an openness of heart, could conclude that those gospels were written hundreds of years after Christ supposedly existed. I don't think you can, and here's, here's why. I wanna just look at some of the evidence. I'll start out with this one. It's fairly, fairly generic, but it's sort of uh, from within a biblical context itself. This one's real general, but it's fairly well recorded um, through the Bible and even, even through para-biblical sort of uh, writings that Paul the Apostle was martyred in Rome around 64 AD. His story and life are recorded in the book of Acts, which is sort of part two of a book that was written by Dr. Luke, right? He wrote the gospel of Luke is part one, and you can tell because it says it's written to this person called Theophilus, right? Most excellent Theophilus. And then Acts is sort of part two of that book. Now, here's the interesting thing. At the end of the book of Acts, um, Paul is still very much alive. So he's writing a history, he's writing an account. Paul is very, very much still alive. And so if he's still alive at the end of the book of Acts, and we know Paul died in 64 AD, what does that mean about when it was written? Take a guess. What's that? Right, it was, it was probably 64 AD or before would be, again, this is all internal sort of evidence. But, uh, but yeah, it would indicate the fact that if Paul died in 64 AD and he's referenced in that book that he's, he was, uh, that that book was written before 64 AD. Now, additionally, it's interesting because Paul quotes Luke's gospel in his writings. So again, if he died in 64 AD, he's referencing it in his writings, uh, which would indicate that Luke's gospel was, of, of course, before that. And Luke even quotes Mark, uh, Mark's gospel, which is an indicator that Mark was written before that, and which we tend to know before true. Again, this is all internal evidence. I get that this is not the strongest evidence. I just think it's an interesting starting point. Uh, to, to, to look at and say, you know what, there's a decent shot, decent chance here that the Bible is saying, and if it's true, it's saying it was written before 64 AD, sometime before that. But let's go on because it gets really good from here, okay? So, by the way, I can kind of geek out on this stuff. I read four or five books uh, on the subject this week. I uh, listened to some podcasts. I've got hundreds of hours worth of stuff, and you're a captive audience. We're going to bolt the doors. No, I'm kidding. But, <laughs> but uh, uh, we're just going to scratch the surface. But there's some great stuff. Look at some of what I ran across this week. This is corroborating sort of evidence from outside the Bible, from outside Christianity, from those that are skeptics, sometimes those that are even hating of Jesus, Christianity, the way, and so on. And yet, listen to these quotes. They're corroborating the stories. The first one is from a guy by the name of Josephus, who was a first century non-Christian historian uh, for Emperor Vespian. He died in, in 97 AD, okay? Listen to what he says. 
At this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus. And his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. This is somebody outside the Christian faith, right? In fact, if anything, he's got a Jewish background, Jews being those that were primarily responsible for putting Jesus to death, right? saying, you know what, there was this guy named Jesus. He was an upright, godly man. He died, you know, crucified, died, and rose again. At least that's what, he, that's what his disciples claim. Compelling? I think it should be. This guy died in 97 AD, which means these events happened sometime before that that he's, he's recounting. Another one, here's this, this is a quote from Tacitus, a Roman historian uh, who died in AD 120. He says this, consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero uh, fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, in a most mischievous superstition, (laughs) mainly that Christ arose from the dead and his followers clung to that for the rest of their lives, uh, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Okay, well, you're kind of getting his slant here, but it's interesting, isn't it? He's saying, you know what? There's this guy named Christ who was crucified, and his followers believed that he rose from the dead, and they're spreading it throughout the world. Again, this guy died in AD 120. He's a total pagan, total non-Christian. He is not happy about it, but he's just reporting these are actual historical events that happened sometime before AD 120. How about this one? Thallus, who died in 60 AD. Now we're getting close. We're getting close. We're getting within the lifetime of eyewitnesses here. Super close. Says this. He says, on the whole world, there pressed a most fearful darkness and the rocks were rent by an earthquake in many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. He goes on to say he's describing this event that happened uh, right after the Passover when a man named Jesus was crucified. Does that sound familiar? He's, he's describing specific events that happened on Good Friday, right, that we just celebrated last week. These are all non-Christian, Roman, and Jewish historians who are at least complicit in Jesus' death. You can't argue that they would have been in on some sort of a big cover-up or conspiracy. Historians f- from Roman emperors in the first century, how, how can you explain that if these were things that were made up hundreds of years after the fact? Except to say, you know what? These documents that we, that we refer to in the New Testament, the Gospels in particular, were written in the first century. And they were written during the lifetime of eyewitnesses who would have had a fit if you were just making stuff up. Just for perspective, one more piece. I thought this is cool of archaeology this week. Jesus died around, right, give or take, around 33 AD, right? Most uh, of the New Testament would have been written then between 40 and, let's say, 80 to 90 AD, the last one being uh, probably John, who lived a good long life uh, writing letters, I mean, Revelation. Uh, In 2012, archaeologists uncovered a mummy's mask covering up the face of a deceased person. Secular historians almost instantly uh, did a bunch of different tests on this thing and dated, dated the mask sometime before 90 AD. These masks were made up as, with as many as 25 pieces of papyrus, which was actually extremely expensive in that day, so they would reuse, they'd sort of recycle papyrus from different documents, legal documents, sometimes contracts, different, different things like that, sometimes even philosophical writings they would take and they would use uh, to, and put together over this with glue and different things to make it into a mask. Well, they found this one in 2012, and because, because they've learned that you know, all these documents are in there and, the, and historians are intrigued by what on these documents, they've, they've developed this process to be able to take out the glue, remove the pages, and be able to, s- to read what's on them. Is that not cool? 
Well, one of these takes, sometimes takes years. It's crazy. One of the documents that's found, again, in this, in this mask dated no later than 90 AD was an entire page of the book of Mark. How do you explain that if it's written hundreds of years after the, after the fact? There's another one dated 120 AD, a, a big portion of the Gospel of Mark that's, that's traveled hundreds of miles and already been translated into Egyptian. Friends, can I just say a, th a rational thinking person that, that's open to really looking and examining the evidence, I, I don't know that you can conclude that this was a fantasy written hundreds of years after the fact, but you'd have to conclude it's written in the first century. And if it's in the first century, it's in the lifetime of key eyewitnesses that could corroborate the story. Uh, Wilkins and Moreland, uh, authors and experts in this field, said this. They said, even if we did not have any Christian writings, nothing from the Bible, he said, we could st we'd still be able to conclude from such non-Christian writings as Josephus, Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, and others, that Jesus performed healings and exorcisms. He was rejected by the Jewish, Jewish leaders. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He died. Many reported seeing him alive after his resurrection. And by 64 AD, thousands of people followed, trusted, and worshiped him as God. Isn't that crazy? In addition to these writings from non-Christian writers, there's, there's things like the early church fathers that quote from the New Testament all over the place. Ignatius, for instance, who was literally a disciple of John. Isn't that cool? He, he discipled, he poured into this guy named Ignatius who becomes the bishop of Antioch. He was martyred in 110 AD, pretty much historically agreed upon. In his correspondence, he quotes from the books of Matthew, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, and 10 other New Testament books. What does that tell you about when the New Testament was written? First century. If it was written in the first century, then it could not have been just a fairy tale or an exaggeration. People would have remembered, and the Jews and their officials would have gladly recorded the truth in history, any discrepancies that, they, that occurred in history. It'd be like people these days that have tried to convince the world that there was no Holocaust during World War II. There's an outcry because people remember, right? People People have had stories from their families that have been passed down. There's, there's evidence that would support. Nobody would go for it. And in some ways, that corroborates the story even more. 1 Corinthians, this is kind of a cool, uh, cool last-minute thought on this piece, but 1 Corinthians 15, 4 through 6, uh, Paul's writing, he says, he's, he's teaching, and he says this, that, that uh, Jesus was buried, was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to to uh, Simon, right, and to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, he said, though some have fallen asleep. It's as if he's saying, look, there are eyewitnesses. You can go back here and you can talk to them. He's like basically saying, I double dog dare you. There are, these are the people. This is basically their address. Come and check it out for yourself. Eyewitness testimony. It's a big deal. There's evidence. It's compelling if it's written in the first century and you've got people like the disciples double dog daring you to check it out for yourself. Chances are it's true. So we get on that? Written in the first century? Second, second thing, uh, the, and I hear this all the time too, is you know, how can I trust the Bible when it's so full of contradictions, when it's so full of errors and that kind of thing? And, and so I wanna, I wanna take a couple minutes and just spend on that as well. You ever hear that one? Ever thought that? Ever believe some of that? Yeah. For starters, I wanna say, it's just not a very factual statement. The Bible is actually incredibly reliable. The writer's grasp on history, the inclusion of just amazing details, uh, and the, the corroboration of archaeology all point to the Bible being jaw-droppingly accurate, reliable, and truthful. Let me, let me just show you three verses from the book of Luke that is uh, stagger me, just the level of detail in here. Look at this. Luke 3, uh, verses 1 through 3 says this, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iteria, and Tri Triconitus, and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene, aren't you glad you're not reading this? Uh, during the high priesthood of, of Anus and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the, the country around the, around the Jordan River, baptizing, uh, or preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. How many stinking little details are contained in those three verses? Things that are 
historically verifiable, right? If he's wrong, it should be easy to prove. <laughs> I mean, look at how many there are. In the 15th year, the exact year of the reign of this ruler, right? When this person was the ruler and this person was a ruler and this person was a ruler, this happened. I mean, that's, the Bible is filled with that amount of detail. And you would think, well, if the Bible is filled with just nonsense, these things, you wouldn't expect them to line up, right? You wouldn't expect that these things are true. And yet the opposite is actually the case. We find an unbelievable amount of evidence that backs up pretty much, I mean, almost all of these kinds of claims that are in the pages of God's book. For instance, in verse one, I've got it highlighted there, uh, talks about Licinius being a tetrarch of Abilene. For years, scholars thought that Luke, the biblical writer, just got it wrong and could, therefore couldn't be trusted because it was well known that Licinius lived actually 50 years earlier before this time and had a completely different title. And so many Bible scholars thought, well, he got it wrong. He, he's just off. This, this is just nonsense. Until the 20th century. When archaeologists found an inscription written by Caesar Tiberius that refers to Licinius as the Tetrarch of Abilene. As it turns out, there was two guys by the same name. Acts 19 or Romans 16, 23 talks about this guy named by the name of Erastus from Corinth, who's referred to as a city treasurer. Now, some uh, non-Christian scholars assume that Christians could not have come from uh, that sort of educated class. They, would, they could only come from the lower classes of society to be able to be convinced of this kind of stuff. And so they dismissed this as clearly an error. Can't be true, they thought. Until 1929, when an archaeologist excavated a first century street in Corinth that had this inscription on it. It says, Erastus, uh, procurator and Adel uh, laid this pavement at his own expense. Adel means literally supervisor in financial affairs. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> he, he wrote that on his own street. I think that's kind of funny. But anyway, <laughs> he might have had some insecurity issues or something. But, uh, but anyway, it's preserved there and backs up, again, the claims uh, of Scripture. For many centuries, um, there was no evidence that existed that the ancient city of Jericho that's described in the Old Testament actually existed. And so scholars, uh, you know, believe that it was sort of a fairy tale. It must have been made up, they thought. There's no way this could have happened, especially the way the Bible describes it, with the walls toppling outward. That's not the way. When, when, when cities were sieged, the walls toppled inward, right? They, they toppled inward, never outward. That's impossible. That, that kind of stuff doesn't happen. Clearly, the Bible is in error. It's just a, a made-up fairy story. Until 1930, a British archaeologist discovered the city. With walls collapsed, they fell outward instead of inward like most conquered cities. It confuses some archaeologists to this day, but lines up perfectly with the biblical account. It even ended up making the top 10 list of archaeological findings for the 20th century. In the last 100 years, scores and scores of archaeological finds have solved what once seemed to be unexplainable contradictions between the historical account and the biblical account. And again and again and again, the biblical account has been exonerated. In John 5, just another one real quick, the, apostle, uh, the apostles tell of Jesus going by the pool at Bethes uh, Bethesda that had five pillars surrounding it. If you remember the story, Jesus stops and heals a man that's waiting there to get into the pool. Well, a few years back, archaeologists uncovered a, sm a small pool with, you want to guess how many pillars there are? You can see a few of them right there. Five, right? They're saying, man, it's exactly where the Bible said it would be. There's a Baylor University scholar and professor called Rodney Stark who says this. He says, the major result of the many unrelenting scholarly attacks on the historical reliability of the New Testament has been to frustrate the attackers, <laughs> Because again and again, the scripture has stood up to their challenges. You know what it's saying? History and archaeology seems to line up again and again and again and again and again with exactly what the Bible describes. Should that increase our confidence a little bit? I think so. I think so. One more uh, quote on this. A few years ago, Bruce Feiler wrote a New York Times bestselling book called Walking the Bible. Bruce uh, grew up Jewish but is not practicing anymore. He goes to the Middle East and starts exploring uh, sort of the land of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. 
It's a really interesting read, but here's an excerpt that I found particularly interesting. Bruce Feiler is interviewing an archaeologist who he had met uh, in Beersheba called Eliezer Oren, one of the most uh, well-known archaeologists in the world. He has a PhD from Harvard, NYU, and Penn. Anyway, Feiler has asked uh, asked Eliezer about the reliability of the Bible, and here's what he said. He said, well, I'm going through a certain transformation. When I was younger, I was in my rebellious phase, and in my lectures, I kept saying that there is no, we, we don't have evidence. These stories did not take place. That goes for the patriarchs, the exodus, etc. He says, but the older I get, he said, I don't know, perhaps I get more stupid, but I feel that my archaeological experience only enhances my understanding. So he asked, what effect has this had on your faith? He says, I can tell you this, today I treat the Bible with much more respect. And he asked him in this interview, can you give it a grade in terms of archaeological accuracy? And one of the best archaeologists in the world, he says this, for the first time all morning, he says he grinned. He said, I'd give it an A++. Right? There's an amazing agreement even down to details, names, rulers, places, or whatever agreement between the Bible and archaeology and the historical record. It gets an A++ for accuracy, but it's even more than that. It's not just a collection of facts and that kind of stuff. The Bible is actually a compilation of 66 different books written over a period of a thousand years by many different human authors. And yet there is one unmistakable grand story and theme woven throughout every page of the book. It's a story about us. It's a story about humanity and our propensity again and again and again to go our own way, right? To, to screw up, to sin, to turn our backs on God, to go our own way. And it's a story about a lovesick God that comes after us graciously and lovingly again and again and again and again until we get to the New Testament, the person of Jesus Christ, God come down to live and to die because he loves you and me so much to bring us back home to God. That story and the essence of it is woven throughout 66 different books over the period of a thousand years from hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, you've got prophets that are looking ahead telling the same story. A savior is coming. Someone's coming from God who will pay for your sins and will bring you back home to the Father. It's an amazing story. There's an amazing unity of theme throughout the pages of each, uh, throughout each and every page of this book. Sometimes I think it's easy for us to to zero in on details that seem like clear-cut contradictions as evidence that the Bible is full of errors and can't be trusted. They'll point out things like a story in Luke 7 when the servant of a Roman centurion is sick, and so he sends his servants to Jesus to ask him to come and heal him. Well, in Matthew, Matthew's account says that the centurion himself came to ask for healing. And skeptics uh, will often be like, see, see, look at this, clear-cut contradiction. It's an error. You can't trust this book. It, it, they can't agree on anything. But I think sometimes that's just a misunderstanding on our part. Like, for instance, if you were to turn on the news tonight, and you, you might hear a, a statement like this, the president today, in an unprecedented move, did this, right? Or, or said this, made this kind of statement about whatever, fill in the blank. Now, does that mean that the president himself made that statement? Or could it be that a speechwriter formed it and a press secretary got up in front of people on the president's behalf and spoke? Is, it, is that a clear-cut contradiction, right? Is it, does it prove, oh, that's a falsity, or is it just two different ways of saying the same thing? Could it be that there's great unity sometimes, even where we think there's diversity? Now, in all fairness, are there places in Scripture that seem like contradictions? Are there places that, that you scratch your head and you're like, yeah, I don't get it. <laughs> like, are there those? Absolutely. I was thinking this week, in Matthew 27, it records Judas, who betrayed Jesus. You guys know uh, the name, probably. It says he went out and hanged himself. He killed himself. Well, in Acts 1, it says he fell down headfirst in a field and his intestines spilled out. Which one is it? How do you reconcile those? And to be honest, our answer has to be, to some degree, I don't know. I guess my, my gut is, could it be both? 
could he have hung himself and at some point his body for whatever reason fell down his intestines split out after he was dead entirely possible it's kind of gory sorry about that <laughs> i should edit and give you the the pg version <laughs> i'll only speak half of it but but i mean right i mean there, there's things like that, though, that we, do, we just don't know. I mean, I think if we're honest, it's, it's part of what we're saying. We're looking at evidence, not beyond all doubt, right? Not, a, not perfectly, not so that we have no more questions. We're just looking at where does the evidence point? Does this book seem to be fairly reliable? I think it does. I, th- I think it's more than fairly reliable. I think it's incredibly reliable down to the detail. And my, my, uh, I read a bunch of books this week, uh, several books by the same guy. Oh, man, if you haven't read this, you should, you should get s- some of these. J. Warner Wallace, former atheist, police detective. He, he applied his criminal science to actually hunting down. His first book was called Cold Case Christianity. He applied his science to going back and investigating uh, the claims about Christ the same way he would uh, 10 or 15 year old uh, cold case uh, and actually ends, ends up becoming a Christ follower in the midst of it. But he's, he says, you know, uh, defense attorneys have this, have this, uh, this tactic that they use over and over and over again. They try to keep you from looking at the big picture and instead they'll try to focus in on one little tiny piece of evidence and just keep you focused there. They want to keep you focused there to say, see, this, this could be a doubt. This could be, this could cause you to doubt. This, this is different. These don't line up. This is, they, they said, among, you know, uh, whatever else they do, they try to keep you from stepping back and looking at the big picture. They want to keep you focused on the details. Sometimes I think that's true when it comes to the Bible as well. I think skeptics and our culture and stuff that you'll see are sometimes scientists or else they want to keep you focused on a couple little details on the 0.1% that we scratch our heads and say, I don't know. And sometimes we can miss the forest for the trees, right? Sometimes we can miss the 99.9% that is unbelievably clear that we're like, you know what? This, uh, this is absolutely clear and agreed upon. I ran across a great example. I wish I could play the clip, but it's a little too long. But uh, it was from the great uh, um, late night TV host, Stephen Colbert, right? So uh, the great theologian, and uh, a couple years ago, he had a biblical scholar, actually a guy that was an atheist on, that was totally ripping, uh, ripping on, uh, on the Bible, and basically saying the, the gospel writers, they can't agree on anything and shouldn't be trusted. You can't believe them, basically. But Colbert has this great response. He says, yeah, but aren't you kind of bearing the lead dead guy rises from the grave. <laughs> in other words, he's saying, yeah, you're getting nitpicky about some of these little things that we're not 100% sure how they align with one another, but the overarching p- story of the Bible from beginning to end is all the same. There is uh, even extra biblical outside of the Bible, non-Christian resources uh, or sources that actually claim the same thing. It all lines up all the New Testament writers, all the Old Testament writers would agree, this is a story about Jesus, right? It's a story about God coming to earth to save us from our sins, who died, but wait, death couldn't defeat him, so he rose again and now offers freedom, forgiveness, new life, and a happily ever after for those that would put their faith and trust in Christ. Don't miss the forest for the trees, right? We don't want to miss the 99 point whatever percent of the Bible that we are absolutely clear on, that the, that the writers are in absolute agreement on for the 0.1% that we can sometimes get confused on. Here's the deal, friends. This book, the story of Christ's life and death and resurrection of salvation that is made available through him, this story is unquestionably affirmed throughout the pages of the entire Bible. It's universally agreed upon by all of the early church fathers, by all the disciples, by all the writers of scripture. Heck, you've even got pagan historians that are backing it up. It's a no-brainer. This book is accurate. This book is reliable. Now, will each and every gospel writer have their own nuance, their own unique details that they include in other things that they leave out? Sure. Will they tell the story in their own words and in their own ways? Absolutely. Will they have their own unique perspectives on it? Yes. In some ways, I think the little tiny uh, things that s- appear to be contradictions, in some ways that corroborates that it's real. If the Gospels were all cooked up, they would have smoothed out all of the imperfections, smoothed out all the questions. They would have made it identical. And detectives will tell you that they get real leery when, when statements, when eyewitnesses' testimony are identical. Because that's usually a sign that it's cooked up. It's the whole thing's made up. Each of us will naturally tell things in our own way, and it shows that it's legit. 
third, third thing I kind of want us to look at. Because it's one thing uh, to say it's written in the first century. It's one thing to say it's a historically reliable book. But the Bible takes it way beyond that. It says, no, 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 this is God's word. This is God breathed, God inspired. And so, uh, again, what kind of evidence can we look at to say it, to move it beyond the category of a historical book to God breathed? And I got two things I want us to look at. I'll try and keep it quick. The first one uh, I'm going to talk about is prophecy. Because I think that's one of those things that you're like, how do you explain this apart from the supernatural involvement in this? Throughout the pages of God's book, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that were predicted throughout the Bible that actually came true. Let me give you just a few of them. In the 5th century B.C., there was a strong city on the Mediterranean coast named Tyre or something like that, T-Y-R-E. It was a vital city. The, the biblical prophet Ezekiel uh, makes a bold assertion that the city would be utterly destroyed, completely wiped out, and that no city would ever again be built on its site. I mean, it's a jaw-dropping kind of statement. It would, be, it would be sort of like saying, you know, Chicago or Peoria or Bloomington or something like, you know, 50 years from now, there's going to be nothing there but prairie, and no city will ever again be built there. I mean, the people of the day laughed him off, right? They said, this, this is impossible. It's a big city. It can't just be destroyed and never again rebuilt. And yet, he described in amazing detail the destruction that happened a couple hundred years later. And, and in fact, you could go to Lebanon today. You can go and see and stand on the flat rocks that once provided the foundation for that city. There's nothing there. It was completely destroyed and never rebuilt. This is just one of hundreds. What do you do with that? You just say, lucky guess? Is that, I mean, is, is, that our, is that our solution? Is that our answer? Or was the supernatural God behind it? Was a God that was able to look ahead to the future and say, this is what's going to happen? Was he the initiator of this deal? Were these words God-breathed and not just something a guy wrote down one time? One example. I think, of course, the best example is, are the prophecies that are written about Jesus. There are actually 332 Old Testament-specific prophecies made about Jesus coming, including unbelievable detail, including stuff like this, he, that he'd be born of a virgin. Anybody see that coming, right? I mean, that's a kind of a shocker. That he, uh, what family he would come from, his lineage, right? The fact that John the Baptist would come first. The fact that he would perform miracles, and specifically some of the which ones he'd perform. Prophecies that he would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. I mean, can you imagine? That's very specific. That he would be beaten and spat upon, mocked and crucified. That after his death, he would be pierced through and then would be buried in a rich man's tomb and on the third day, raised back to life again. There is unbelievable amounts of detail. Many of these predictions were made five to seven hundred years before the birth of Christ. This is the fingerprint evidence, right? This is the stuff that you just can't explain away. How in the world is this possible? Very specific kinds of things. And there's historical proof that backs up the timeline. We, some of you might have heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls at one point. Ever heard those mentioned? One of the big uh, discoveries there was uh, a, uh, almost an entire uh, copy of the book of Isaiah in which many of these prophecies about Christ were, were written. And verifiably, this find, this particular copy of it, was written at least 150 years before the birth of Christ. Now, the original had been written hundreds of years before that, but this is the earliest document we had at that time. It was a big deal. And so you've got all these specific, you've got these basically fingerprints pointing ahead to the coming of the, the God-man, right? The Son of God, Jesus, the Savior of the world who's going to be born here and do these miracles and is going to die and rise again. Hundreds of years verifiably before the birth of Christ, these are, these are predicted. We've got proof. And he fit everyone to a T. How do you explain that? I shared this once before, but I love this stat, so I can't get away from it. But... Uh, um, there's a guy by the name of Peter Stone who's a mathematician. He figured out the probability of any one person in history fulfilling just 
eight of the 322 specific prophecies about Christ. He figured out what would be the odds of anyone, I mean, because certainly, I mean, there's a, several, there's people born in Bethlehem, right? I mean, there's got to be some others. There gotta, and so if you, if you kind of stack these things up, what would it look like? And so he picked eight that somebody would have no control over, like where they'd be born, where they'd move when, he, when the kid was a baby, right? How they'd die. And, you know, some of that kind of stuff. He picked eight of the, the 322 specific prophecies and figured, what are the odds? What are the odds of any one person? This is the math that he came up with. The odds of any one person in history come fitting the bill for this is one in 10 to the 17th power. That's 17 zeros after it. Now, just for perspective, the odds of getting struck by lightning are only one in 2.8 million. That's six zeros. The odds of winning the Powerball lottery is one in 80 million. That's seven zeros. So to put this in perspective, the, the odds of any one person in history fulfilling just eight of these prophecies about Christ is the same as the odds of getting struck by lightning every day for 9.7 million years. It could happen, right? <laughs> no, it couldn't, right? It's impossible. Or it's the, it's the same as picking the, the correct Powerball lottery number right every day for 3.4 million years. It's statistically impossible unless a supernatural God is a part of that, unless the living God was looking ahead and saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you about the coming of my son. Friends, this is not just an old, stale, crusty history book telling about events that happened thousands of years ago and it's totally irrelevant to, the, you know, to today. This is the living word of God. It's inspired by God. I don't know how, I don't know how a rational thinking person that's examined the evidence, I don't know how you could, could conclude anything else, but that God had a part of putting this thing together. It's actually God breathed. God's word. And if it's God's word, that has implications for our lives, doesn't it? Then maybe I should open this book. Maybe I should read this book. Maybe I should align my life by this book. Maybe I should get to know the God and the Savior that's described in the pages of this book. Oh, man. Running low on time. One more quick thing. The last thing I'll just, I'll just hit, because I think this is cool. I've mentioned it before, but uh, is life change sort of evidence, right? I think there's, there's some life change stuff that happens in the pages of this book that happens that I think it's hard to explain if all this is cooked up, if all this is just hocus pocus. And here's what I mean. Like the first one, and I, I mentioned this from time to time, but how do you explain James, the brother of Jesus? How do you explain the fact that after the resurrection, the Bible says that, that Jesus appeared to James, his half-brother, right, his brother, after the resurrection, and from that point forward, James's life was completely transformed to the point where he was willing to die proclaiming the truth that his brother was God, was God's son that came down to earth, that lived, that died, and that rose again. What would you have to do to convince your brother that you were God? What would you have to do to convince your brother that to the point where, where he'd be willing to die for that belief? How can you explain that? The, the, the writers of the New Testament and the early disciples, they did not get rich. They did not gain favor and power in this deal. You want to know what they did? Most of them died for their faith in Christ. They were persecuted. They were strung up uh, at parties and set on fire to give light to one, one of the emperor's parties. I mean, that's the kind of, this, it was not a popular or favorable thing, but you get G people like James, the brother of Jesus that's willing to die to proclaim that his brother was not just a man, but he was the savior, the Messiah, the promised one that this book had foretold and that there was life and salvation available because he was alive. How can you explain that other than the fact that it's real, that the living Jesus appeared to him? Or how about Paul? How do you explain the life of Paul was known as Saul earlier? to a religious sect that hated Christians, despised them. He spent most of his life going around trying to arrest them and trying to get them killed until one day Jesus appeared to him. The resurrected Christ appeared to him, changed his life, and from that moment forward, his entire life was about proclaiming to the world, it was about starting churches and proclaiming to the world that the Savior, this Jesus that he had formerly persecuted, was really the Savior of the world and that there was life available in his name. How do you explain that? 
if this is all just a bunch of hocus pocus fairy magic stuff. How do you explain that? Apart from the supernatural, how do you explain that? Except that Jesus is alive. Except the, 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 the Jesus that's described in the pages of this book is real and is still changing hearts and lives today. How do you explain the hundreds of millions of people, myself included, that could testify and tell you about the ways that they have been transformed by Jesus? The ways, ways that we have opened up the pages of this book and heard the living God speak. Ways that our lives have been altered, our hearts have been altered, our relationships have changed, the trajectory of our life has gone in a different direction because God has showed up as we've gotten to know him in the pages. How do you explain that? Apart from the fact that it's real, it's true, it's relevant, that the living God is involved in it. Well, friends, this, we're just scratching the surface today. I just wanted to, to touch base and just, uh, again, I'm, uh, we can't, I can't give you all there is and answer everybody's questions and show all the evidence and all that kind of stuff. I, we're just scratching the surface. My goal was to give you just enough for you to say, you know what? Maybe it's true. <laughs> Maybe there's reasons to believe that this stuff is real. And if it is, then maybe I need to open this thing up and start reading. If you don't know where to start, I always encourage people to start in either Luke or John. It's one of the Gospels. It's all about Jesus, right? It's all about him and who he is, his life, his death, his resurrection. Read it and see if the living God doesn't show up and start doing a work in you. It could be that you're here and you still, you still got, you're like, I got way more questions than that and, uh, and I'm not convinced yet. And if so, that's fine. It's a great place to check out Jesus stuff. I've got a few books that I put on the, welcomes, uh, on the welcome table. This one's called The Case for Easter. Take one with you. It's uh, written by a former atheist that uh, became a Christ follower by doing some investigation on the, on the life the death, the resurrection of Jesus. It's Lee Strobel, great stuff. If uh, you want some other ideas, I'd love to share with you some of the books that I've been reading and uh, point you in the right direction. Again, if you have more questions, but if, if you've seen enough, if you've heard enough, it's sort of verdict time, right? Where does the evidence point? If you're open-hearted, open-minded, what does the evidence say about this book? I think you'd have to conclude, written in the first century, right? In, in the time of eyewitnesses, in the time it's supposed to be, that it is historically reliable in unprecedented ways and that the living God had his fingers all over it. I don't know about you, but my hope and my prayer is that it would give us increased confidence to become people who live by this book and who get to know the God who's described in the pages of this book. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you that... Uh, that you have given us reason to believe that this isn't just a blind faith, check your brain at the door kind of deal, but that you have in so many ways given us confidence to trust your word, to trust and get to know you in the pages of your book. And Father, we just want to open up our hearts and our, our lives and respond to you today. For those of us that are ready, that are convinced, God, we open ourselves up and say, come Lord Jesus, come and have your way, come and and teach me and lead me. Open up your word to me that I could know you more, that I could follow you more, that I could align my life by you more and more. Come and, come and rescue me from my sin and lead me from this point forward. Jesus, I need you. For those of us that still have questions, that are still wrestling, Father, would you come and reveal yourself to us? Would you lead and guide our seeking when the time is right, God, would you just, uh, would you bring us home? We love you. We thank you. We offer ourselves to you afresh this morning. Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.